0: literally telling the bank that, you know, we're trying to get this done for next year, but also for 10 years from now, 20 years from now, this theater's not going anywhere. This is going to be a sustainable operation for a long period of time for movies and also events. Basically, for things that people want to leave the house for, we will be there. And that's essentially what we told them. I mean, we're in the leaving the house industry. Whatever you want to say about all these industries that are having trouble or maybe coming back, uh, things like that. People will want to leave the house again and go somewhere and spend money that is not at their house. It's just the way it's going to be.
1: This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the Editorial Director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. And I am joined by Daniel Laria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro Magazine. Um, This week, we are going to talk to Barack Epstein, who is the president of Aviation Cinemas, which runs the Texas Theater in the Oak Cliff suburb of Dallas. Uh, We have a great interview with Barack coming up, but first, we want to recap a couple of things that have happened in the news. So, Daniel, let's talk about China, which seems to be back.
2: Yeah, that seems to be the case. Uh, Russ, we saw a huge weekend at the Chinese box office this being the Lunar New Year weekend. Now, if you remember last year here in the film industry, this is the exact weekend we realized something is gonna hit the fan and it's probably not going to be good. The Chinese Lunar New Year weekend is one of the biggest movie going weekends in China. So when the Chinese authorities decided to close cinemas and delay the films that were going to open then, we knew there was a bigger problem than I think the rest of of the world was anticipating. This year, hopefully, is another foreshadowing, uh, probably a positive one, if we look at that box office result. The Chinese Lunar New Year weekend of 2021 brought in a major title with Detective Chinatown Three which grossed a tremendous amount of money. We're still trying to get the official uh, dollar amount on those titles grosses, but we do have confirmation from IMAX in that it provided the biggest Lunar New Year weekend uh, for the company in the Chinese market with 25 million for IMAX grosses alone. That's, that's very major and very positive news in China, Russ, really reflecting the recovery that we're also seeing underway in South Korea and Japan.
1: So what's going on in the rest of the world, Latin America and uh, other regions at this point uh, with their recoveries?
2: We're really not seeing that same recovery that we've seen in the Asia Pacific region. In Latin America, Comscore already reported an 81.3% decline in box office and 80% decline in admissions for the entire region over 2020. Actually, it's the biggest drop that we're seeing uh, for 2020 at a worldwide level from all of the different regions in the global marketplace. Within the region, uh, Cinepolis continues to be the top circuit. That's a uh, Mexico-based Cinepolis, which has a leadership position in Mexico and has a number of cinemas across the region. The top cinema in Latin America, according to Comscore, this is an interesting detail, Russ, it's actually... On the U.S.-Mexico border, a location from Cinepolis in Tijuana actually becoming the best performing cinema in 2020. I'm not sure how much that has to do with the cinema closures that we were seeing in California and maybe some folks doing some cinema tourism during 2020.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask if that is the the thing, you know, obviously the stereotype paints Tijuana as as a destination for people uh, engaging in tourism of other types, but it's intriguing to me if cinema closures in the US might've prompted people to cross the border to Tijuana to go to the movies. That's kind of a a wild story that we should follow up on.
2: Yeah, it's actually the first time in a number of years that we see that a city outside of a capital in a Latin American country ends up being the top performing uh, site in the region. So this is a quirk from 2020. We'll see what happens in 2021 as the cinema industry continues to try to recover. Unfortunately, Mexico is not doing that well in terms of the cinema recovery, Russ. Last week, we got reports that Cinemex, the number two circuit in the Mexican market, had gone dark. Now these were reported either as rumors or as facts by a number of publications. We've followed up uh, over at Box Office Pro with a number of contacts can still not confirm what exactly is going on with Cinemex in Mexico right now other than the circuit is not selling tickets on its website and most of their locations if not all are not
1: open as we speak. That's wild. And it's kind of amazing that we just don't have confirmation at this point.
2: Yeah, uh, a frustrating detail in how this world of journalism works. But we'll follow up on Box Office Pro as soon as we can confirm the reason behind the closures of Cinemex in the Mexican market.
1: So let's uh, look north of the border between the U.S. and Mexico to the domestic market. How are things now, especially given that we had Judas and the Black Messiah, the latest uh, Warner Brothers film, to open, uh, hitting both theaters and HBO Max simultaneously?
2: As you know, Russ, this is probably one of the—is it fair to call it one of the front runners in terms of buzz for
1: this Oscar season? Yeah, it is. And it's intriguing that it's a movie being released in February that is still a contender for the what is technically the 2020 Oscars.
2: So really, it is a title that came in with a lot of buzz, a lot of conversation, some great talent behind it. The movie opened in second place in both the three-day and four-day estimates behind The Croods A New Age. A movie that's been in circulation for 12 weeks in cinemas now. (laughs) That's three months in cinemas. And crucially, that's also been available to stream for nine weeks. So Judas and the Black Messiah narrowly coming in in second place behind a movie that's been around for three months. I don't know. I think it's a big surprise for us. I'm not sure how we can read this. A couple of things come into mind at the lack of more data points. But I think it speaks to maybe an early indication of what the value of a theatrical window might be in the long run for a title, whether that's three weeks, five weeks or more, a theatrical window uh, we're seeing might have uh, a positive effect for a title both online and in theaters. But hey, it just might be a situation where the marketing support that a title like Judas and the Black Messiah might've actually benefited HBO Max, an app, rather than than a release for availability. As we know, Universal is putting out films in theaters and agnostically online. That means the digital streaming component isn't tied to promoting any specific download of an app. That's not the case with Warner Brothers releases. And the last factor we have to consider is, is Judas and the Black Messiah a type of movie that works just as well at the home than it would at the cinema. A lot of questions for us, uh, a lot of speculation that we can take on these numbers. What's your early reaction to this shock at the box office?
1: I mean, the dominance of The crudes too this weekend is certainly surprising. You know, we've known that that little mini-franchise is one that had a lot of potential power. It was a movie that I know, you know, the big circuits were really hopeful for in its theatrical opening pre-COVID, and it's not a surprise to me that it has a certain sort of staying power. I could also envision some data that that uh, shows us that as vaccines are slowly rolling out and, and people are becoming slightly more comfortable with The theatrical experience with going out in general that, you know, families went out to see the crudes. Um, However, I think the other thing that's also key this weekend is that over the last few days, we've had insane winter storms and record low temperatures across the United States over the last few days. I mean, where I am right now, it's been incredibly cold uh, for the past week, like single digits, which has Prevented me from going virtually anywhere. And while I might think, oh, the general easing of COVID numbers might have led more families to go out, I would also think that the cold might have prevented people from going. I don't have any data to support this one way or the other. As for Judas and the Black Messiah, yeah, I think it's, you know, we've talked on the podcast quite a bit about the idea that. Theatrical marketing ends up also being marketing for the next stage of a film's life cycle, whether it is uh, PVOD or streaming or home media or whatever. And so I think that's a good point that the theatrical marketing for Judas and the Black Messiah and the awareness of it in theaters might have done more to help HBO Max in this particular round, at least, than it did to help the movie in its theatrical opening.
2: It's interesting what you say about those family audiences returning to cinemas, because last weekend here at the domestic box office, we also saw a title that's been in theaters for months, The War with Grandpa, cross the $20 million mark, which is an important benchmark right now in this uh, pandemic-stricken recovery effort for movie theaters. I think it's another sign that those early assumptions that, you know what, we're guilty of as well, if you listen back to those uh, podcasts we recorded over the summer, on what are going to be the type of audiences coming back to the movies. We haven't had too many family titles. I don't think too many people assumed it would be families that would consistently come back to the cinema. But if we look at the performance of those two titles in the market, The War with Grandpa and Crude's A New Age, These are titles that are bringing family audiences back again and again and again. I'm going to be very curious what happens with a day-and-date release of Raya and the Last Dragon from Disney in early March.
1: And especially since that title, if I'm not mistaken, is being rolled out with a model more akin to the Mulan model, which is to say that to watch it via Disney+, Plus, you'll have to pay a premium rather than it being bundled as part of the service uh, as titles are on HBO Max from Warner Brothers.
2: It's going to be the first Disney branded title to hit cinemas since the pandemic began. So we'll see how that moves along. You can read our reporting on that title and everything else related to box office at boxofficepro.com. Now, going back to Judas and the Black Messiah, Russ, uh, we were talking about the importance of a platform to promote these movies coming out, whether it's in cinemas or in the home. Judas and the Black Messiah actually debuted, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival this year. It was part of a renewed effort by the Sundance Institute to bring the festival to more theaters and to more places in a year where the physical festival itself wouldn't be able to accommodate its usual guests. Now, the Sundance Film Festival was available to audiences all over the country through digital screenings. And it also signed up, I believe it was 22 different art houses across the nation and programmed specific films at those sites to help these cinemas with fresh content in a critical time for the movie theater recovery. And we got the opportunity to speak to one of those art houses that participated in that program that also screened Judas and the Black Messiah, the Texas Theater.
1: So as some quick background, before we speak to Barack Epstein, who runs the Texas Theater, the theater itself originally opened as a grand single screen cinema. You know, it's one of those houses that had a classic marquee, huge auditorium with balconies. And this was located and still is in the Dallas suburb of Oak Cliff. When the theater opened in 1931, it was the first movie theater actually built for movies in the Dallas area. And it also featured something that uh, virtually nobody else had, which was an early form of air conditioning, which in the Dallas area, you can imagine, might be pretty valuable. It had a ventilation system that could blow cold air into the auditorium generated from a water-cooled system with water pumped from a 4,000-gallon tank. So a far cry from the HVACs we see today. But uh, in (laughs) 1931— Anything, <laughs> anything. literally, you know, a bowl of fan blowing over, a, a, you know, a bunch of ice cubes, like better than nothing. And you know what? During that time, if, if you
2: look back at the ads that we had at Box Office Magazine, air conditioning was just one of those must-have amenities for movie theaters. It really brought audiences to the cinemas during the summer months. It, it was what we would say, I don't know, premium large format, even recliner seating today, air conditioning probably even topped those innovations Back during that time,
1: and hey, even in the 90s, when I lived in a couple of houses that had no air conditioning, I could generate lists of movies that I saw solely because I wanted to pay however much, you know, to sit somewhere cold for two hours. I saw a bunch of movies that I might not have otherwise seen because my house was simply unbearable and I needed to get somewhere air conditioned. So, I totally get it, is what I'm saying. All of that said, that's not the thing that the Texas Theater was most famous for. It became, The theater became part of American history on November 22, 1963, when at around 1.45 PM, a, a group of police officers rushed into the theater to arrest someone who had uh, gone in without paying, and that was Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, who hours earlier had assassinated President John F. Kennedy. So, the Texas theater became infamous for a time. And that infamy is not necessarily the reason for the next few decades of the the theater's history. But in the years that followed, the Texas theater went through a redesign. It was managed by the United Artists Circuit through 1989. It did pretty well, but then into the 90s, like a lot of other historic single screen cinemas in the United States, The Texas Theater went through a difficult time. Suburban multiplexes claimed dominance over the US exhibition market, and the Texas Theater floundered for a while. It changed hands several times. And then in 2010, its current ownership group, the Aviation Cinemas, came onto the scene, purchased the theater, and revitalized it. And so now we're going to speak with Barack Epstein, who runs Aviation Cinemas and who has been behind the revitalization of the Texas theater and is guiding it into the future.
2: Barack, thanks again for joining us. Uh, I know you've told us that you are one of our uh, loyal listeners since we started uh, recording this podcast in March. So thank you. And I'm excited to finally get you on to not only talk about the Texas Theater, but you guys were one of the satellite cinemas participating at the 2021 uh, Sundance Film Festival. We wanna hear all about that. Uh, But let's start real quick at the beginning. Could you give us a quick rundown of the history of the Texas Theater and how you came to be involved with it? Well, Texas Theater was built
0: in 1931, originally owned by uh, Howard Hughes, actually. It was part of his chain of movie theaters. And uh, he only owned the Texas Theater for about a year. But it was said that he his money actually pushed the building and um, the uh, initial opening through the Depression when a lot of projects weren't happening because literally it opened in 1931. And then uh, it was kind of this opulent, large, one-screen, 1,700-seat auditorium theater, big first one in Dallas to have air conditioning, not in the suburbs, I should say. And now we would consider Oak Cliff part of Dallas really downtown. But back in 1931, it was the suburbs. So the theater became famous or infamous, Daniel, as you might say, on 11 63 uh, as the uh, place where Lee Harvey Oswald was captured so we're actually, we look at it as, in a positive way. We caught the bad guy at at the Texas Theater. Fifty years later, they gave a medal of honor to um, Johnny Brewer, who was the man who worked at the shoe store four doors down, who saw Oswald and was like, that guy looks like trouble, called the cops, and that's what got him captured. Uh, Johnny Brewer, uh, the box office lady named Julia Julia Postal, and a guy who worked the candy counter called Butch Butch Burrow were all interviewed in the Warren Report. And... If you have not read the Warren Report, it reads like a fifteen hundred page David Mamet play. <laughs> It's like that's like real staccato. Oh, which both sounds great and absolutely horrifying. It's kind of fantastic. It's it's like it's it's like staccato dialogue. It's like where were you at the thing that day? I was there. Were you there? Did you open the door? I opened the door. Where was the thing? Like it's repetitive. <laughs> like I guarantee you Mamet read it before he wrote like So when Howard Hughes owned it and Robin Rowley it was the name of the company, when he sold it, it became Rowley United which eventually became United Artists. And United Artists actually ran it essentially from 1931 to 1989 in different versions of its company. Mm. In the 80s, the theater was mostly used as a regional headquarters for for United Artists in the Dallas area. They closed the upstairs part of the theater. They closed the balcony, which I'm going to get to in a second, and they set up sort of mini corporate offices there. They apparently were distributing all the candy for all the DFW theaters out of the Texas Theater in the 80s because there was a lot of storage there, and they had extra space. But eventually they closed the theater in 89, and they got out of that, that part of the market. A year later, it was used in Oliver Stone's JFK. It was uh, the Texas Theater got to the play itself in that movie and the street, the exterior of the street. And it kind of stopped and started a few times in the '90s. Different owners started it and stopped. It. There was a fire in the mid '90s. It closed essentially in 1998, and then in 2001 a nonprofit got together with some community support and some city support and was able to start doing uh, renovations, a group called the Oak Cliff Foundation. And from 2001 to 2009, they did a lot of infrastructure. They, they cleaned a lot of stuff up. They redid the plumbing, electrical, certain things like that. Uh, and they made it possible for me and my group to come in in 2010. And essentially, you know, we were, just, we were looking for a place to show indie movies. And all of a sudden, the opportunity became that we could run the theater. And that's essentially how it started in 2010. And we've slowly been able to add things and upgrade things and do work uh, since then to to keep it going. And now, this year, we've been essentially, or in 2020, we were essentially closed for most of the year indoors. We were able to tighten up our our long gestating plan of uh, turning the balcony, the area which I had mentioned in the early 80s, they'd shut down to, be corporate offices, into another theater. So it's kind of hard to explain, but the balcony, no one's really been there in 40 years. It had been closed off, and and it had been in disrepair, and we weren't able to figure out how to, it didn't really make sense to make it one big screen again, because even on our live shows, the sight lines were weird. So we were like, we're going to keep the downstairs for movies and live, and then we're going to Upstairs, create a whole new auditorium that's going to seat about 170 people. So not a small room. Wow! It's going to yeah. be a, a nice big screen. It'll be 35 millimeter, also in DCP upstairs. Um, and also, we're creating a balcony row for the downstairs theater. So we're actually putting the wall instead of at the edge of the balcony, about 15 feet back, because the room is the balcony is that big. So we can still fit a whole other auditorium up there, and also create 25 more seats for the downstairs theater via a front row. Uh, that's also where we're going to put the new DCP projector for the downstairs.
2: It seems like you guys have been, you know, taking this this break because of COVID-19 positively. For sure. I mean, essentially, we've been trying to do this balcony project for years.
0: And when we obviously closed in, in March, we were like, I called everybody and I'm like we get we got to get this going, and um, you know it took a lot of work dealing with our, with our architects and obviously our, our bank to see. You know I have to give a lot of kudos to those guys because we didn't we're not funding this out of our, our pockets. We had to convince our bank that the movie theater and live event industry is coming back and you should invest in this, and they were all for it. And our only cash flow since uh, this for 2020 has been doing our own pop-up drive-in, which we've been doing like a lot of other theaters I've been listening to your podcast have talked about, but we're doing it in our parking lot. And we do do it via DCP out there. We roll out a smaller uh, Christie on wheels and we roll it out in the parking lot and we, we set up an inflatable. And we've been doing that essentially every weekend since July. We're doing it this weekend too. Luckily, the weather here in Texas is usually friendly enough to where uh, it's not snowing. Or when it's really hot, it's fine. You know, we tough it out.
2: When the COVID-19 crisis hits, you guys close temporarily in March. Could you walk us through that reopening period? Uh, What was it like? What were some of those lessons you learned in what started working, what really didn't work? Because you not only have that pop-up drive-in space, you also have your iconic indoor theater. The case
0: count started to come down in around late September. Um, we started looking at doing some indoor programming in October, so we did go back and program indoors in October, and we decided uh, we were going to follow the cinema safe rules that NATO put out. Uh, we followed them to a T, and then we even cranked things up a notch. Um, we only we are the downstairs auditorium seats 645, uh, but we decided we were going to cap indoor attendance at 100, which is 16.7% of the room. Uh, we also invested in bipolar ionization technology for our HVAC vents, electrostatic sprayers, increased, increased the mer-filtration of our big handlers. Uh, we, we did the touchless uh, credit card processing, which we had to spend money on, on, the HVAC, on our POS systems. So we made big investments, actually, to, to be open, and we felt that was a successful and also the right thing to do. And, uh, and our indoor screenings went well. And we tried to keep them going through a little bit of November. But that, as you guys know, the case counts started going back up, and it quickly became apparent that we should go back outside. I'll give you an example. like We, um, you know, we don't normally play a lot of mainstream titles, but that movie Freaky that Universal had coming out looked like it might be up our alley and our, our audience's alley. So I was like, we're going to play Freaky, And they were a little apprehensive about how we were going to show it in the parking lot, even though other people had done it. So I was like, well, we'll do it inside one weekend and we'll do it outside another weekend. And um, our outside numbers were exponentially higher than our inside numbers um, on that title. And and, and that's when we realized that um, we should stay outside for a minute. Now, that being said... Right after we went back outside, this is like you know, Thanksgiving time, December. Luckily, we had a mild December here in Dallas, where it was it was fifty seven degrees every night, and we were outside in the parking lot. But we had announced that we were going to be partnering with the Sundance Film Festival to be the Dallas venue for their twenty twenty one program, and that announcement came around December, and we had Sundance initially when they were talking to everybody. I think that they assumed that everybody who they were choosing as satellite venues would be doing it inside, minus a couple outliers. But for, for one reason is they assumed that it's going to be cold. And then as time went on and, and, and discussions were happening and, you know, uh, December and January were, were pretty rough uh, COVID-wise, you know, a lot of venues that were Sundance, some of them dropped off, some of them converted to outside. You know, as you guys know, LA didn't happen, Park City didn't happen. And they would give us the out. They'd be like, "Hey, you guys still want to do this?" And we're like, "Well, Dallas, even though the case counts are rising, there has not been you know additional restrictions. We're following the rules. So all we did was we converted uh, some of the screenings to outdoors. Uh, we did our opening night program for Sundance and our closing night program outdoors, and then we we did the rest of them indoors. And then we followed the same CinemaSafe rules that we were following in October uh, and November. And and we had successful screenings. We we had um, we had filmmakers in attendance for some of them." And, and they gave us good feedback and uh, we had good crowd interactions for those for those Q&A's even, uh, even with everybody wearing their masks. So we f- we felt that it was a successful program, but they were great partners to work with. They had tons of communication, you know, online meetings and information to give and, and swag we gave out. And they, t- they tried to make it as much as a, a festival experience as they could and I think it was a pretty successful program they've already announced that you know all these people more people watched Sundance movies than ever before they made it really accessible you know obviously to people at home but also people in other cities we had people come physically to screenings and we're like man I've never got I never thought I could go to a Sundance screening because it sounds so complicated if you're not in the industry
1: yeah honestly it's complicated the first time you do go to Sundance you get there and it's and it's kind of like the, I, the first time I went I felt very overwhelmed and, and kind of lost in a way that I hadn't always at other festivals
0: I agree, it's, it's not, it, unless you know what you're doing or unless you have a friend telling you what to do it, it is not the easiest festival to navigate you're standing in the snow, you got to figure out what, how the app works, you got to figure out how to get to the train, to the bus to take you to that one, if, if you go to the wrong bus it's taking you the wrong way
1: <laughs> you realize you should have just walked because it's snowing walked. and the buses are taking three times longer than they should yeah. and you needed to be at the library t- 15 minutes ago
0: you have to know if you go to the fresh market at the wrong time, you'll be there for an hour and a half. Like, there are <laughs> things you gotta know when to you're in a, a deal. Touch.
2: <laughs> when you're at Sunday. And this project, I think, is fascinating because it makes that festival experience inclusive. And not only a, a, fe- a festival experience inclusive, but a premiere, a, a blue chip festival experience inclusive. It's a festival that folks have heard about where, with titles that have a measure of buzz. There's this sort of like exclusive aura or this insider-ness to certain aspects of film culture that I think ends up shooting us in the foot, or we end up shooting ourselves in the foot with it. Really, our our goal in this industry is to have people watch movies, is to sell tickets to movies. And yes, a certain amount of buzz helps, but to a certain point, going uh, too much into that exclusionary process doesn't really work. What was your experience in bringing the Sundance Film Festival to these local audiences. Was there a film community? Was there buzz or conversation around it that you had seen otherwise during the COVID period? Well, specifically some of the Sundance films,
0: we had a lot of buzz uh, because we had three Texas films that we were showing essentially on the same day. We had a film called Cusp, which is a documentary. Uh, We had a film called Jockey that uh, was by Dallas area filmmakers. And that was, we had them in attendance. We also had the filmmakers who made Cusp in attendance. And then there was a film called The Blazing World, which was shot in around Austin that um, that we were able to show. them. we did them all on the same day. And all three of those screenings were almost sold out for our, you know, COVID sold out, you know, packed uh, under 100 people. But right, you know, a lot of people in the room for, for, for those. And you know, those had buzz, at least in Dallas. So there was a lot of local press. Dallas Morning News was covering them. There was interest specifically a lot in these films. And then, of course, also a lot of interest in, in Judas and the Black Messiah. We sold that screening out. Basically, immediately, people were calling repeatedly. You know, if we had, if we had not been in COVID times, we would have put six hundred people in there. I can tell you because the amount of calls we took about that that film, even though we're only showing it twelve days before its national release.
2: What you mean? You mean this concept of showing something exclusively at cinemas before a home video release <laughs> actually helps the home video? Well, this is has anyone yeah. at, at, at Warner Media heard about this? We should call them. <laughs> But
0: I did parlay a little bit of that buzz to uh, to Warner Brothers being like, "Hey, I, I want to show this film at the Texas Theater." So we're actually mm-hmm. opening it on the break as well, indoor and outdoor. We're going to do some indoor and some outdoor on that film. I, but it's it's also a fantastic film. I got to watch it at our screening. But those were the ones that had a lot of buzz for us. Uh, we mm-hmm. did we we did show the opening night film Coda, which, as you guys know, made a kajillion dollars. Is it the highest
2: Sundance sale of all time? I think. Yeah, I
1: think so. Yeah,
2: highest sale twenty twenty five million as they reported.
1: Yeah. And as these streamers are sort of pouring money into content as much as I hate that word. Yeah. It's, it's certainly changed the game, but yeah, Coda is the money they paid for that was incredible. Indeed. But, but it's a crowd pleaser
0: and it could be a crossover hit, um, when it comes out. And for instance, um, back to jockey, you know, the Dallas movie, um, bought by Sony pictures, classics that they're already basically gearing up for an Oscar campaign uh, for this film, because that's what they do. Clifton Collins Jr. is the lead, and he won a jury award at Sundance for best actor. And and this looks like he's going to be in the best actor conversation for 2022 Oscars. And that's a film that's just going to get more buzz, I feel like, um, until it comes out. So yeah, I mean, a lot of these films had great buzz. And we only got to show 13 films. You know, there's, there was something like 70, I want to say 70 features in the program. And I get to, I got, I watched some of them online. A few when I got home late at night, I was like, oh, what can I still watch? And things like that. But to me, you know, it, it, massively successful just because you're, you get, people get to hear about these films and, and actually watch them. And we got to take them directly to the
1: people. How much of this sort of festival structure do you foresee persisting into the future? Perhaps even after we come out of COVID restrictions altogether?
0: Interesting point. I mean, we do our own small film festival called the Oak Cliff Film Festival here based at Texas Theater, but we also use some other venues in the neighborhood and we're planning our festival for June, June 3rd to 6th, and we haven't really said if it's going to be all indoor, all outdoor, any virtual. We're basically planning on some sort of hybrid version of what we do on a smaller scale. Obviously, we're not Sundance. But there's a lot of festivals like us that are regional-based, neighborhood-based festivals, and, and the purpose they serve often is to bring the films that played Sundance or Cannes or Tribeca or Shop South by Southwest to the local communities before they have national releases, or sometimes they're not going to have a national release because it's not this the the films are festival kind of films and a lot of festival kind of films their theatrical release is the regional neighborhood film festival touring circuit and we will pay those films a screening fee and those producers won't get money and if we pay them and 50 other festivals pay them well that's basically their box office gross And, and for smaller films you know, I, I saw a film online called Cryptozoo. Oh
1: right, yeah, it, it, it looks crazy from what I've read about it, yeah mm-hmm.
0: it's fantastic. I, I don't see um, Sony Pictures Classics buying that film, but I see that I could see that film playing at festivals for a long, long time, and people will talk about that film. So there's certain kind of films that fit that that criteria. So, back to your original question, I think, you know, a lot of festivals like Oak Cliff uh, and other regionals will be doing, you know, hybrid versions of what they're doing last year and this year. I think a lot will be more prepared. Last year, a lot of festivals just had to cancel because they didn't know what to do. And, you know, versus throwing up something half-assed online or whatever. Some people did good programs online, not saying... They were half-assed. I'm just saying it was complicated to pivot so fast. But this year, people are going to have more chance to figure things out, add more online, add more drive-ins, and pop-up drive-ins has increased, obviously, uh, on how to do it in the past year. Uh, And then hopefully some indoor screenings too, just limited capacity. You know, is that capacity going to be ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent? I don't know. But you know, Sundance next year, twenty twenty two, they're they're taking a breather at the moment, but I'm sure that they'll in the summer try to think about what what the landscape is going to look like for the following year. And now that they've done all this work creating this infrastructure, I feel like they'll involve. A lot of these theaters in something. I don't know what that is, but maybe some sort of everybody who got to participate last year gets a screening or something. You know, so I don't know. I, I just feel like they've created this this great you know community outreach and this infrastructure, and uh, it would be a shame just to completely not do it next year. Of course, you know, having the festival in Park City, if they're able to do that, almost normal is their main priority. But uh, I think you know, as a side project, they could continue doing uh, the satellite
1: program. I hope. It's it would kind of be a national extension of what they've done for years with Salt Lake City, where there's mm-hmm. kind of the you know the mini extension Sundance, uh, where they have screenings in Salt Lake for mm-hmm. locals. Uh, this just takes that and pushes it out nationwide.
0: I agree, hundred percent. Be great. Um, you know, unfortunately, South by Southwest this year is all online. I mean, it's still a pro- still a festival, and they're still doing everything. But um, but I haven't seen what other. Spring festivals like Tribeca have said what they're doing,
2: or if not, or I haven't heard. Do you guys know?
1: I don't know no, at this okay. point, uh, aside from can being delayed.
2: It's it's going to be an interesting thing to track, I think, moving forward, as you note. Uh, some festivals have gone completely online. Others, I'm thinking specifically the New York Film Festival, which also went not— they didn't partner with Art Houses nationwide, which I think is the really big win coming out of the Sundance experience and the Sundance experiment in 2021— But uh, you had some pop-up drive-ins to the New York Film Festival there. I don't know if this is a a critical observation, but I think programming plays a part. I think it's easier to program a Sundance title in a community than it would be a New York Film Festival, say, Romanian four-hour drama at at a drive-in, you know, on the outskirts of New York City. I think each each festival has its programming strands and, and profile, and I think it's more amenable to some than it is to others.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Brock, thank you. This has been awesome.
2: Well, thank you guys for having me.
1: Really just underlines my desire to come to the theater and the festival that you guys do at some point in the not too distant future.
2: And thanks again to our guest, Barack Epstein from Aviation Cinemas, who runs the Texas Theater in Dallas, Texas. Tune in next week for another episode of the Box Office Podcast. This episode was produced by Caitlin and the Box Office Company, along with Record Edit Podcast, and was written by Russ Fisher and myself, Daniel Luria. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.